Oh, I just learned a really great word. What's this? It's umbrella form. So apparently, like, but I mean, in itself, that's not very exciting. But um, my friend and I were recently at the Field Museum in Chicago, and they have this really bizarre, like, diorama of all of these tadpoles and all their different feeding apparatuses. And I kind of thought tadpoles just basically had like a regular mouth. Um, but it turns out a bunch of them have different mouths. And one of them has this like creepy mouth that they use. It kind of like they have a bottom lip and like a side lip that kind of unfurl. And Whoa. it makes a big umbrella, um, umbrella form feeding apparatus that they like use to scrape food off the top of the water. And That's when they're like they then they fold it all up and it looks like a little flesh mustache. That's that's so cool. It's uh, disgusting. I just learned a cool new word. It's flesh mustache. <laughs> we don't do this very often, but this is a content warning for the following episode. The following episode may contain graphic descriptions of disease, infection, injuries, and workplace conditions that some people may find upsetting. We apologize for any disturbance this episode may cause and encourage sensitive listeners to skip this episode if these topics are too upsetting. Part of the mission of the Go Dig a Hole podcast is to build realistic expectations for working in the field to build preparedness among professionals and better public understanding of what we do. Before we get into this episode of the Go Dig a Hole podcast, I'd like to give a shout out to some awesome independent listener-supported podcasts. Check out Curiosity and Focus, Women in Archaeology, Archie Fantasies, and The Transect. You can also find Jonathan Sims on YouTube and Instagram TV. Also, shout out to our awesome Patreon supporters, Jonathan, Rende, Brent, Kevin, Holly, Ryan, Blair, Julia, and Bill. You're all helping me do some awesome things with the Go Dig a Hole podcast and other public archaeology outreach programs here in the Pacific Northwest. Go to patreon.com forward slash go dig a hole to support the projects of Go Dig a Hole and to get your awesome sticker and some other cool goodies. Well, we're back with an episode that should convince all field scientists to never go outside again. Wait, so to really quickly introduce everyone on the call, uh, we have Kirsten Lopez, who's the frequent uh, co-host of the Go Dig a Hole podcast and also on the Women in Archaeology podcast. Um, she's also heavily involved in Oregon Archaeology and the Association of Oregon Archaeologists. Um, we have Daniel Kwan, who I don't know how many times you've been on Go Dig a Hole, but uh, you've you've been on many times, and it's always fun. And Daniel has a podcast called Curiosity and Focus, uh, and he's also uh, heavily involved in education and outreach at the Royal Ontario Museum, which is how we got in touch with Danielle DeCarl. Uh, Danielle was on an episode of Curiosity and Focus where we got to watch leeches feed on a hog intestine, and it was it was like a live stream on on Facebook video and it was so transfixing that I couldn't literally couldn't take my eyes off of it like I just had my laptop set up while I was working and I was like oh my god wow oh, yay. Uh, 
it was super gross. And then, so as I was doing some homework, I found out that Danielle also has a recent publication out called Worms That Suck. And I'm a huge fan of papers with cool names. So uh, Danielle, welcome back. And we also have Steph Homhofer, who's uh, also a Canadian. That makes three Canadians and two Americans <laughs> on the show. And that doesn't happen very often, uh, which is cool. But Steph, you are an archaeologist in Canada. And you're moving to British Columbia soon. And you have a blog um, called uh, Stones, Bones, and Books, right? Bones, Stones, and Books. I always get the order wrong. Um, (laughs) But it's super awesome. Uh, I love your writing. And I also love uh, your presence on uh, kind of archaeology Twitter. Uh, So it's cool to have us all here together. Yay. Nice to be here. Woo! I'm excited. (laughs) (laughs) me too so um let's see where should we kick this off so we usually talk about archaeology on go dig a hole but there are many field sciences and danielle is not an archaeologist you do research on parasites and that certainly encounters the hazards in the field like pretty much head on and uh i think that's probably a good place to start um so you study uh, leeches specifically, but also uh, other parasites. So what are people exposed to when they work in the field in terms of parasites? We actually, this is like perfect. So uh, my my uh, lab mate, Rafael, and I, we are currently planning a trip to Brazil to collect in December. And uh, it turns out that like we found this one location. It looks amazing. Like if you were to just like put... Uh, all of the criteria that make the best leech hunting spot into like one place, it would be this place. And uh, we were really, really excited. And we recently learned that um, it is a hotbed of leishmaniasis, which made our advisor, Sebastian, like super, super nervous because, um, I mean, and rightly so, he's often sort of like worried for our safety, Um, but he's especially worried about leishmaniasis because it's really gross. so I don't know if you guys are, are familiar, but it's a it's a trypanosome. So it's a, a single-celled organism that is spread by sandfly bites, and uh, it causes fever, low blood cell count, enlarged liver and spleen, spleen. But like the worst thing that it does is it causes these disgusting ulcers in your skin, your mouth, your nose, um, and they are just like large areas of like dead. It's like a canker score, but like canker sore but like enormous and like on 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 your outsides um it actually on your outsides your you're bones. lucky hmm? it also affects your bones yes so that's the thing if you're lucky it's on your outsides but if you're unlucky it gets on your insides uh yeah so bones organs and uh in that case it's like super difficult to treat you can get it sort of chronically and um that's not fun so that's one of the things that you're definitely uh, exposed to, especially if you're area, in areas of recent deforestation, it's super, super common. Not cool. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think of things that would be common to all of us. I mean, malaria is a huge one, of course. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have you guys had a, I mean, I haven't personally, unfortunately, had too much experience with this, although I have taken malaria medications. But a lot of people report having really vivid dreams when they're taking malaria meds. Oh yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Like never, some of the I worst nightmares of my whole life have been on malaria meds. It, like just uh, incredibly vivid, but also where like uh, incredibly violent too. 
and like where I was the bad guy. And that's not something I, I experienced like any other time. It's really weird. My, uh, one of my, uh, PIs that I was doing field work with once during my undergrad, who will remain nameless. He said that he had it. Wait, can I talk about genitals in this podcast? Yeah. Talk about anything you want to. I kind of wanted to talk about Bigfoot's dong too, but, um, we oh, can we can get there later. He said he had a dream where he was rock climbing inside of a woman's vagina. <laughs> which is kind of interesting. I've never Whoa. had any- <laughs> <laughs> But now I'm curious about Bigfoot's dong, so <laughs> <laughs> don't be. <laughs> oh no. Oh, I, I know where this is going. I'll let you two get to that <laughs> yeah uh let's just say in a nutshell don't google it unless you're uh ready to face the consequences uh but mm-hmm. the, the story goes there's a senator or some some politician i'm not sure of the exact office in virginia that accused her opponent of being into bigfoot erotica and so like as the internet does, it erupted with Bigfoot erotica in response to it. And so, um, you know, kind of the people who are into cryptozoology and cryptids and all that uh, have just been going wild with the sudden uh, surge of, of Bigfoot popularity. But it's kind of one of those funny things to watch people go, oh, wow, Bigfoot's in right now. Oh, no. Oh, God, no. <laughs> the uh, the guy is a, a Denver Riggleman. <laughs> <laughs> that's such yeah, a good name too that's his name his name's denver riggleman and uh leslie cockburn called him out on twitter and uh yeah it's um i was i actually saw this on a video maybe two hours ago like a news video on youtube and i was like is this real and, and, this, and this came this came after the uh sasha baron cohen uh stuff that was online about like asian tourists yeah oh mm. my god that was See, I have, horrendous too. I have a survey out right now that I'm I'm looking for Canadian insight into belief in things like cryptozoology, and it involves Bigfoot quite a bit. So last night I kept seeing all these tweets going around talking about Bigfoot, and I'm like, oh boy, what's going on? This is so relevant to my research. <laughs> and then I oh, clicked no. on them, and I've seen things now that I can't unsee. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> it was such an unfortunate night. So Bigfoot's a field hazard. Um... Mm-hmm. Bigfoot traps, sir. weirdly enough. Uh, so certain parts of the Northwest, I can think of one place in particular that has had a Bigfoot trap for like 40 years. And a dude ended up getting caught in it. And <laughs> he, <laughs> he didn't die, but he wasn't in very good shape when they found him. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> Wow, it's it's been legally disbanded as of like uh, for the last like two years, but it it's been active for a really long time. It's somewhere in southern Oregon, um, so fun times. Watch out when you're out there. <laughs> is there a special mechanism for trapping Bigfoot? Like, is there some sort of like lore about like oh, Bigfoot cannot resist some sort of magical shiny object, or is it just like a <laughs> no? I think it's like. A certain, I don't remember what it was, but it was something along the lines of like one of those you walk into it and once you're into it and it's triggered by a particular weight, it'll shut the door. <laughs> and unless <laughs> someone's there to open it, you're kind of stuck. Um, and then there's, there's a an- video game about, about hunting Bigfoot. It's just called Bigfoot. It's on Steam right now. 
it's like 18 bucks and it's like a cooperative shooter where you and a whole bunch of people try to hunt bigfoot in the forest as he stalks you it's terrifying oh i have to I have to look this up now yeah big just it's just called bigfoot in all caps <laughs> on steam you can't just make friends with bigfoot but you have to like in the game you have to like trap him and they like and there's like this big cage for him it's 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 hilarious if you trap him first can you turn on all the people i don't uh i don't know <laughs> i don't know it's It'd be cool if you could play as play. bigfoot and like try well, and not be caught Ugh. that would be cool well <laughs> there, there's actually a game like that it's it's a it's a mod of i guess counter-strike and half-life it's called hunted and one of you is like this invisible human with a knife and all these soldiers are hunting you and you have to try to hunt them back. It's like Predator. Well, that is awesome. And then there's Evolve. <laughs> so back to field hazards. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. We covered uh, Leishmaniasis, leeches, well, kind of leeches. Danielle, in one of the previous conversations or attempts we made at this podcast, uh, you had mentioned one of the hazards of... Um, how you try to remove a leech, and I think it's I think it's worth uh, covering that. Oh yeah, so a lot of people when they get leeches will often try to use uh, salt or a lemon or a fire, like a match or a cigarette or something, to get leeches off of them. Uh, but that's kind of a terrible idea, and the reason for that is that leeches are full of bacteria. Actually, one of my lab mates is like studying the bacterial symbioses that that leeches have. Um, her stuff is really cool. Her name is Claire. But uh, <laughs> the, if, if leeches are stressed out, they will uh, vomit. And so if you try and get a leech off using one of these methods that will stress them out, they'll vomit into the wound, and you can actually get a pretty serious infection. So there's no record ever of leeches transmitting diseases between humans. But still, uh, you can get a pretty nasty bacterial infection from leech vomit. So in general, if you've got a leech attached to you, if you're if you're up for it, you can just let them finish feeding. But some will <laughs> uh, take a very long time to feed. Um, some of them can take longer than an hour, so I don't blame you if you'd rather get them off. If you can get your fingernail or the edge of a knife or a credit card underneath the jaws and pull them off really quickly, that's the best thing to do. The one caveat there is that some leeches don't have jaws. Instead, they have a proboscis that they kind of forcibly insert into your skin in order to suck your blood. Ooh. And uh, there's no really, there's not really a quick way to get those guys off. Um, if you use a knife and try and get them off that way, it kind of just, it'll be a little bit less quick. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's something you have to be aware of. Normally, these are ones that are sort of like super dorsoventrally flattened. So if you find something that looks like sort of the archetypical leech, big, giant, black worm then credit card or fingernail or a knife that'll work cool nice otherwise just look <laughs> that is that is great to know <laughs> yeah on the note of uh removing parasites that's also an issue with removing ticks too is you know like you'll you'll often hear of people just like trying to pluck them off with their fingers and then you know it's it's pretty likely that the head if the tick has embedded in your skin the head can get left behind and cause an infection. Or if you, you know, futz around with the animal too much, uh, you know, it, I, I guess it could vomit into your, your blood, right? I think so. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> Most of the hazards I hear with ticks are with the head staying embedded. Yeah. Pretty nasty. I had that actually happen once. Um, I had a tick in a 
sort of on my side, on my back, just far enough over to where I could barely see it there. And I was in the field and I'm trying to slowly, you know, get it to pull. And of course it broke. So I'm like, fuck. <laughs> so I actually had a field partner, um, and this is a little bit gruesome, and I, I still have a scar from this, but I, I had uh, her sterilize a knife and was the most trusting field partner, dig partner ever, because she I let her dig out the head from my skin. So that was super exciting. So if you can find someone to help you remove it instead of trying to just take care of it yourself, if it's in an awkward spot, that's that's probably a better idea than having someone dig it out with a pocket knife. Yeah. yeah. I used to uh, do a lot of surveys in uh, heavily wooded areas that had a lot of deer and uh, mm. there wasn't a whole lot of hunting in the area. So ticks were just an enormous problem there. And, uh, I would go through, you know, these fields and stuff where I would just pick them up, uh, you know, from, from my feet to my chest. And, uh, I would keep a roll of duct tape in my backpack. And whenever I had a chance to, uh, you know, like stop and get clear of the brush for a while, I'd roll the duct tape kind of inside out, like sticky side out around my hand. And I would pat myself down and you wouldn't believe how many teeny, teeny little ticks, would come off just by doing that Ooh. that I otherwise Ugh. wouldn't even see. Just like literally hundreds every time I would do it. Ugh. Ugh. Nasty. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's out on in in the east, right? So those are you have more diseases and dangerous things out there, if I recall. Oh, yeah. there's definitely yeah. yeah. Yeah, the, most of the ticks out west, there isn't as much of an issue with Lyme disease and that whatever they call the new... Um, yeah, the one where you me become allergic to meat. To meat? Yeah. To red meat? Oh, yeah, God. Yeah, allergy one? That would suck as an archaeologist just because or any other field science because what do you have? Of the restaurants that are generally in the middle of nowhere, you can trust probably the hamburger if it's cooked all the way through. That, that's, <laughs> the, uh, that's the Lone Star tick? Yeah. Uh, yes. yes. Right. Ugh. Yeah. yeah. But that brings up an important point that if you're uh, working in an area where diseases are possible and you do remove ticks that were embedded in you, you need to keep them so that you can go to the doctor and get checked because they can check the tick for the yeah. disease. And it's, it's easier to check the tick and less invasive. Um, and so, uh, you know, it's, it's also a good thing to have that covered because, um, you know, if you have insurance through your workplace, it's going to cover under a worker's comp if you do get Lyme disease and, you know, working in the East, as long as I did before moving out to Oregon, uh, I met a ton of people who had, you know, like Lyme disease and um, whatever the allergy is uh, uh, to red meat. Um, so it's it's more prevalent than you would think. Um, and, you know, the longer you're in the field, you know, it's it's all about sampling strategy. You know, you're increasing your exposure. Yeah. The other thing you can do, I mean, as you guys probably know, is like definitely wear light clothes so you can see the ticks on you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and yep. you don't, you can get them off before they end up like attaching to you. Mm -hmm. And as much as possible, like cover up all of your skin. Yeah. Pants tucked into socks, elastics around your wrists, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Yep. And uh, permethrin is a good thing to treat your clothes with. Uh, I have. <laughs> 
I have my own personal reasons for not using DEET, but you know, a lot of people will spray DEET on their bodies. I had a cancer scare a few years ago and, uh, I just don't mess with it anymore. There's plenty of, uh, like, you know, all natural insect repellents that I feel work just as well, because even when I did use DEET, I still got tons of ticks and mosquito bites and, and fly mm-hmm. bites and stuff. So, you know, I kind of feel like, uh, when you're hot and sweaty and in a bug infested area, uh, it kind of doesn't matter what you put on you. You're still going to pick up a lot of bugs. Um, but also I'm not a doctor, so that's, that's a caveat or a disclaimer. There is, uh, (laughs) (laughs) yes, don't, don't do what I do. Yeah, that's, and that's where I've seen, um, I've seen people get deep overexposure, um, and that's no fun if you're putting it directly on your skin. So if you're using DEET, especially like the hundred percent or really high, um, concentrations, I've had a lot of people suggest, um, or put it like on their tent. If you're doing tent camping or backpacking in the fields, um, also on like backpack straps and other things that are, you're not really washing consistently. Um, it's some, you know, moderate exposure to your sweat and to yourself. So you're not being directly exposed to it, but it's kind of giving a theoretically, uh, some sort of radius (laughs) 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 on the protection. Yeah. We have a big problem with insect repellent because, I mean, I know this is like a pretty uh, niche thing, but uh, the leeches, of course, don't like it. So we can't use insect repellent at all. Yeah. So, oh, wow. uh, or at that least not, not on our legs or hands, which is kind of the uh, parts that are exposed. So we have to like really, really rely on the engineering controls. Most of mm-hmm. our my lab mates will just wear like, you know, they'll just kind of deal with it or you know, bug spray on their heads or that kind of thing. But I get a horrible allergic reaction. So I have to like wear a full on bug hat. It's really embarrassing. (laughs) Safety over fashion. Yeah. Yeah. And then those, those bug hats are actually going to be the most effective, especially if you know, you're going to be in a place with a shit ton of mosquitoes or something Mm -hmm. screw drowning in bug repellent. I mean, no one likes that. (laughs) Right. With mosquitoes especially, like they're they're charged yeah. with carbon dioxide. And the reason that DEET works is because it like masks the carbon dioxide coming off your skin, but you're still respiring. So as you say, if you're in like a, a place, especially where you're hot and, and sweaty, like you you can only do so much about the carbon dioxide coming about off your body. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oof. Yeah. Mosquito first. Yeah. <laughs> so chickers are another thing uh, or mites uh that I haven't really encountered in the West, but I've really encountered them nope. in the East and mm-hmm. they're horrible. Um, they will make you, it's like, you can't really see them and they'll make you itch like crazy and they leave like scars and rashes. Um, I, I don't exactly know much about the animal itself. Danielle, do you do? Yeah, they are disgusting. Um, so terrifying. <laughs> so what we call chiggers are, are the the larvae of certain mites and the larvae are found in vegetation especially in sort of any kind of like damp low-lying area so yeah if you're in a place that's like moist the east is pretty bad um you have gotten them in uh peru because i was an idiot and i lay on the grass uh, <laughs> but they're they're super nasty so once they they attach to your skin they secrete this like digestive enzyme 
it breaks down skin cells and it forms this little hole and they live inside that hole and they chew up your skin from the inside and that's what they feed on. Ew. Yeah, really yep. nasty. So they're they're itchy because they're like inside of you and there's this like, of course they have to have a, an air tube connected to the outside otherwise they can't breathe. Um, also gross. So after they've kind of fed and matured enough, they kind of drop out of the skin or, and onto the ground and they kind of complete their life cycle uh, and they turn into adults. Kind of the coolest thing about them, or I think, is that the adults are not parasitic at all. They're herbivorous. So they just like eat grass and then lay more larvae on the, on the grass. And, and then, well, I think they eat roots. Regardless. Uh, <laughs> they, uh, yeah, and, they, and like the life cycle kind of begins anew. But they are, they are super, super gross. Yeah, I just Googled them because uh, I was a little unsure about them. And um, yeah, it was a bit of a risky Google search. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the images are not pleasant. <laughs> yeah. They are not pleasant, and they are very itchy. <laughs> but luckily, there's no sort of like long-term um, danger, as far as I know. Just extreme discomfort. Yeah, yeah. you'll be itchy for imagine. probably a couple weeks. Longer than you think is reasonable, for sure. Yeah, and the the scars stay with you for a long time. <laughs> Uh, mm -hmm. especially if you itch at them. Um, so those are all the things on the land, like above the surface that can mess you up as far as uh, parasitic bugs go. Um, there's also, you know, we, we talked about, uh, you know, leeches and stuff in the water. Uh, but there's also um, like a guinea worm and giardia. Um, Danielle, do you have uh, much experience with those? Not firsthand, thankfully. Um, guinea worm is almost, well, the numbers are going down in a lot of different countries, uh, due to like, uh, efforts that are, sorry, it's like the, oh man, what's it called? I'm going to Google it real quick. Uh, there are like efforts by, um, president Carter, where he was talking about trying to eradicate guinea worm in a lot of countries. Man, there was a, oh, this is embarrassing because my advisor's advisor, so my, my academic grandfather was involved in a, um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I should know this. We, yeah. Oh, go ahead. Is, I think the exhibit that uh, they did was called Countdown to Zero, and they were talking about eradicating different diseases and like sort of the different controls that uh, you can use. And one of the things that's been largely eradicated thanks to these kinds of um, controls, is guinea worm, which is like a really, really disgusting nematode. Uh, so you can get that often by contact with unclean drinking water. Mm. And it is uh, really, really gross. So essentially it's this like big, long, giant nematode. The adults can be like 100 centimeters long. Ugh. And it lives inside your body. And... Um, when the worms mature and reproduce inside of you, the fertilized females will like migrate to the surface of, of your skin, uh, usually on the foot, and they cause a blister, which then like erupts and exposes the end of the worm, which is of course very painful. And um, to sort of mitigate this pain, hosts will often like put the uh, that area inside water where the female then deposits a ton of larvae. So that's kind of neat if you're thinking about sort of like the ways that parasites control our hosts it's not so neat for the host um and of <laughs> course the, the emergence of the worm is so painful that it's often associated with like 
fever, nausea, um, dizziness, diarrhea, all these kind of things. But I think the nastiest thing is that uh, usually, so the female worms are the ones that are, they grow really big and they get fertilized and they release their larvae. But the male worms are also inside the host. They're much smaller. And they just kind of like die inside of you. Most of the time when they die, they're just reabsorbed by your body. But sometimes they can die in really inopportune places, like inside your joints, which leads to like arthritis or even like paralysis in the spinal cord, depending on where they die. So that's uh, not cool. And make sure you filter your water. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, God. Yeah. Did you hear about those 42,000-year-old nematodes that were just found alive? In yes. Time? Wait, what? Yeah. Yeah, it, was, it came out, I think, on Friday or something. I don't remember where either... Siberia or the Arctic somewhere, these 42,000-year-old nematodes were found alive. Oh, that's the stuff of nightmares. Oh, yeah, boy. That is pure nightmare fuel. Movie. Yeah, they were, like, dormant for, like, 40,000 years or something, and they just yeah. came back to life like it wasn't anything. I'm yeah, telling you, there's uh, nothing Carpenter good about climate it. change. No. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's... Especially like working, uh, those archaeologists working in um, in those defrosting areas that are specifically going to work in the Arctic where the permafrost is starting to defrost more. Um, that I think there's going to be more hazards with different bacteria, different um, They've nematodes. They've um, been concerned about anthrax from uh, thawing caribou carcasses. Yeah. Oh, that. Gross. Wow. Yeah. Well, and don't forget tetanus. You know, mm -hmm. that's that's something I think that most people don't really know why you're supposed to get a tetanus shot every five to ten years. Yeah. One of my um, colleagues today actually, she cut her finger on a nail in her unit, like a historic nail, and the first thing she did was uh, call her. Her mom happened to be at the doctor's office, so she called and she's like, "Do I have my tetanus shot?" Mm. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, because that that's a nasty, nasty way to go. Um and is completely preventable. So I I am pretty up on getting mine every five years just because it's it's more in the soils, it's not on metals. Yeah. Um so if you have an open wound already and then you're digging in the soil, you it's just as likely to pick it up if it's there. Um as a rusty nail or something too. So that's something to keep in mind because uh, the, I don't know if you guys are familiar, um, but for the sake of listeners, tetanus uh, occurs. It's an infection uh, that's bacterial, if I recall correctly. And as the infection progresses, it makes your muscles um, contract. Um, and if it goes untreated, basically your body contracts to the point to where your diaphragm will contract and you suffocate from your body not being able to move yep so uh get your shots <laughs> <laughs> yes it's you can probably that is one that you could google and find some photos people don't generally die from it anymore but i mean just like you know people who go in the field and decide to save money by being eating peanut butter and bread uh is scurvy <laughs> has, is, a, is a field hazard if you are not very good about being diverse in your dietary intake 
Yeah. See, I have to worry about that. It was my biggest, like, field dangerous anaphylaxis because I have a nut allergy. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, I've almost died, like, four times. Yeah. Yeah, my partner has the same allergy, and it makes makes things like going out in the middle of nowhere traveling really adventurous. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, I, am, I almost died edge. in Petra. I almost died in Petra. Oh, it was the worst. Really? Yeah. Huh. So, like, I, I did I know, three seasons of field work in Jordan, and in the middle of the season, we would always take a break and visit Petra. And it would be, like, the only time we got to stay at, like, a nice place. Mm -hmm. So I don't know what it was. It could have been, the like, the hotel buffet in the morning. But we you, you have to hike through the this canyon, the Seek, to get to the Alcazna, the treasury, that, that mm -hmm. famous building. Mm -hmm. And, like, I'm in good shape. And when we... When we got to the treasury, I'm like, oh, holy shit, I'm out of breath. And I'm like, man, my legs feel weird. And so, like, I sit down, and then all my friends are just so excited to be there. They just, like, leave. They, like, disperse. <laughs> um, and I'm, like, sitting down on this bench. There's goats and cats nearby. And I, like, roll up my pant legs. And I have these giant hives the size of an iPhone on my legs. Whoa. <laughs> and I'm like, what's going on? And I can't, like, my, my breathing is short. I'm like, I'm out of breath. I'm like, what's happening? And then I'm, I'm looking, and I'm like, oh, my God, these are on both of my legs. And and I'm like, okay, so I must have accidentally eaten something, and it just hit me now. Mm -hmm. And so I pop two Benadryls, and I'm like, okay, we're in the middle of nowhere. I'm not going to get to a hospital. An EpiPen's not going to help me. It's just going to make me more uncomfortable. Yeah. So I pop two Benadryls and hike back out of the canyon yeah. i negotiate a cab get back to the hotel i throw cash at the guy get into the shower and i shower and I rip off all my clothes in the shower and collapse on the bed naked and i woke up like four hours later with the my friend who i was bunking with at the time just standing over me <laughs> and i'm like is this heaven <laughs> not. Oh, man. yeah yeah. Fun times. Well, luckily you had that Benadryl with you. That's yeah. come in handy in emergency anaphylactic situations with bees that I've run into in the field. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, keeping God. like ones that you can pop into people's mouths directly and just be like, swish and swallow. Take it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, you could never have enough Benadryl. Oh, yeah. Best. It's yeah. Best. I agree. For someone else absolutely yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. i don't have anaphylaxis but i do get like a really disgusting reaction where uh like from a single mosquito bite i've had my eyes swell shut for oh, a okay. couple of days which makes you pretty useless in the field or uh, <laughs> most recently i got so many black bite lights that my entire head swelled up and it was just like it was it was oh no like, it was disgusting and I, my head and neck were like so sore that I couldn't move from side to side. Oh and my god! I was like the lumpiest. I was really awful. So <laughs> Does this have anything to do with your work in parasitology? No, it, it doesn't. But it is related. So I didn't use. Um, I didn't used to get reactions from leeches, and and actually, I mean, uh, this may just be me, but I, if you guys have ever been fed on by a leech, especially for a long time. The, the bleeding that happens afterward is like 
spectacular. Like it, it's it's disgusting. oh yeah oh yeah. You talked about this on my show. You said you yeah. bled for like twelve hours. Yeah. Wow. And it's not just like regular blood. It's like this like watery, like oozing, gushing, like Tarantino style fucking like arterial spray that's going on. <laughs> It's awesome. Um, it's not I think it's because it's like not going to hurt you and because it's kind of fun. Maybe that's just my definition of awesome. But uh, <laughs> we have these pet leeches in our lab that, that you guys have maybe seen um, us feeding. And before we fed them on hog intestines, I used to feed them all on myself. And uh, I'm not allowed to do that anymore because like slowly by uh, feeding them over and over and over again, I developed an allergic reaction. So... <laughs> I fed them, <laughs> my entire oh. hand swelled up so large that my knuckles became indents and like my skin started to hurt. So, um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not allowed to feed them anymore. <laughs> that ruins all of the video ideas I have. It's okay. I'll do it. I'll do it for science. <laughs> Just don't tell Sebastian. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Well, so those are the, the hazards, like, outdoors and it, it goes kind of beyond the you know like a lot of jobs as field scientists will have you know the standard slips trips and falls talk at the beginning of every day where it's like hey don't uh like fall into your own hole or you know like don't dig your own foot off um but so kirsten has some background with occupational safety hazards and some of those are more specific to the actual field work itself like like you know, the, the, the things that we do that, you know, could injure ourselves. Uh, you want to kick us off with that, Kirsten? Sure. Um, so when you have these occupational hazards in archaeology, let's just take it as a, an example, since this is one I know well. Um, archaeologists work in a variety of settings. You have everything from being in the lab to being um, on a construction site and monitoring other people's work, as well as survey and excavation. So to jump on with some of the survey excavation hazards that we had just discussed, um, being out in the uh, hot and cold are some of the more obvious ones that we know. Um, you know, heat stroke and, and heat exhaustion are, are really important. Um, I myself have had both and it's no fun. <laughs> um, well, you also get it, more susceptible to heat injury after you've had a heat injury. So that's yes. also something to be careful of is your your resilience against heat injuries is diminished each time you have one. Exactly. And also it's not just water. Um, and your body temperature and your body's ability to regulate uh, does have a lot to do with um, the electrolytes uh, because it cannot regulate your temperature without the little mechanisms, the salts, technically, um, the electrolytes that are used to do such things. And you can drink all the water that you want all day long. If you don't have any electrolytes, you're still going to have heat exhaustion or heat stroke. So make sure that you always have both. Um, Gatorade and such um, electrolyte drinks like sports drinks tend to have far too much sugar. So there are like electrolyte tablets and powders that you can get from, uh, different sports, uh, or nutritional stores that are 
better for you if you're doing physical labor outdoors. Uh, so that's something to keep in mind as well. Um, obviously things like hard hats are important. Um, I was recently on a job where <laughs> the winds were pretty, pretty high. I think it was about 20 to 30 mile an hour wind gusts. And, uh, we were required, we were on a job site where we were required to wear hard hats. Unfortunately, um, in, at particular angles, those hard hats can become really great, like projectiles. <laughs> 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 so there was one that took off and went probably about, I don't know, 100 yards in the matter of a few seconds before it hit a lump of um, plant material and another where someone nearly got hit in the nose with their neighbor's hard hat that flew off. So make sure that it fits properly. <laughs> um, <laughs> just to, <laughs> to put that out there. Um, you know, there's also things like, you know, when you're excavating, don't take your shovel and take a really big backswing. Um, when people are standing around you, you know, that's that's always a bad bad way to go yeah um <laughs> especially if you're working in close quarters and so this is something that usually comes in like in excavations where you're, you're trying to do like phase three work and blast through it real quick and there's a bunch of people in the same small vicinity is really keeping an eye out for who's around you and how far um, and you can also chop off the handles to make them shorter. Uh, cause in my, uh, some people really love sharpshooter shovels. I myself hate them. Um, and I'd rather just chop the handle off <laughs> and make the handle a bit shorter yeah. and still have the full size blade. Um, so those are, are a few things. Um, other things to keep in mind are things that most people don't think about. So those are sort of the everyday, um, Others are things like your chemical hazardous chemicals. So if you're working um, at or near a Superfund site, um, very much be aware of and heed any advice about not putting anything in your mouth. <laughs> it's hard to keep dirt out of your mouth when you're working in a mud hole, but you know, when, when the soil, after it gets wet, turns yellow and frothy, there's, there's something that has to be like, <laughs> okay, they were totally right. I'm not going to be drinking out of my cup for a while now. Um, things like that. There's, uh, also making sure that if it appears that there may be a chemical hazard or some other type of a physical hazard to speak with your supervisors and make sure that they are aware of and have the proper procedures. They should have documentation of what you're being exposed to and the safety equipment um, that is required or suggested. And if they don't, as a technician and as a, a grunt, basically, no matter what field you're in, you do have the right to refuse and say, I'm sorry, I don't, you know, this is something that you're required to have. I don't feel safe. I would prefer to have, you know, if there's a way to get a copy of it or, you know, try and figure something out before you get in the position to where you're standing there with your shovel and saying no. <laughs> Yeah, like um, ask tons of questions and stay ahead of the curve on on you know knowing what you're getting into on a super fun site or 
you know, like I, I worked on a couple um, uh, former uh, chemical weapons depots that had been, you know, long since yeah. closed for like decades, but uh, for a, it's called a BRAC survey. It's a base relocate base reallocation and closure uh, thing that triggers a number of laws that requires archaeology and environmental and biological studies to be done before they, you know, just level the place or, you know, mm-hmm. let it deteriorate. Um, so it's kind of like closing up the shop, so to say. And, uh, you know, like they, they do their best to document things, but you always want to ask questions and you always want to know, like, what are the areas where you don't know your hazards? Um, cause that's yeah. where you really have to be on, on high alert for everything. And yeah. if anything looks funny, uh, I don't, I don't care what they're paying you. They're not paying you enough to expose you to that kind of danger. So like Kirsten said, if you're uncomfortable, speak up and, uh, you know, make sure that that's documented when you speak up. Yeah. Because it's, it's not worth your life or well-being. I mean, you can turn down one job, get another one later on that you feel, you know, more bodily safety but if you end up causing yourself harm that body may not be able to go back out in the field again for another job so even if it seems like yeah but i need the money right now think about your body as a long-term investment because you ain't getting another one (laughs) true 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 yeah oh yeah that kind of uh you know sometimes you do encounter cutting corners for the sake of, you know, meeting timelines or budgets or, uh, you know, goals for finishing a project, uh, you know, by whatever benchmark you're trying to hit. Um, but one of the things that, you know, outside of the workplace, you often find on volunteer digs, um, you know, the, the point of pride is digging, digging an impossibly deep hole, uh, and then standing at the bottom of the impossibly deep hole to get your, your new Facebook profile picture. And, uh, it's, that's one of those things that always makes me cringe a little bit it, whenever I see that. Cause it's like, uh, there are ways to, uh, like not die a, a preventable death. Like you could just step out your excavation sure it'll take longer and it might expand the, the scope of work and impact the sampling strategy and all that. If you have to step out your excavation, but if you're going that deep to where it's actually unsafe and, you know, it depends on the soil matrix too, on like, um, how well the soil holds together. Um, but you know, like that's one of those things that you have to ask questions about is, is like, um, what are our plans for stepping out or shoring up the excavation? If you're being paid to do that, then they should have a plan and there should probably ideally hopefully be someone on staff that has that sort of training, like that sort of training exists. Um, and it's pretty common and pretty easy to, to take that training. Um, and when you're excavating, OSHA does actually require someone on site who can make those judgments or at least have made those judgments on that soil type. So that is something that, that should be in place. And if it's not, then, you know, and you're aware, speak, you know, try and ask questions and also see if you could get additional training. It could be an opportunity to, you know, show that, you know, (laughs) um, (laughs) to, to learn and, and take that, that next step. So, right. Um, but like Chris was saying that, that danger is very, very relevant. I mean, a one cubic meter 
weighs about as much as a car. So people have died in construction and pipeline excavations from fall-ins. Um, and they, you don't have to be fully buried either. Um, that's where, like, if you have your legs cut, like, not cut, but, like, the circulation gets cut off from a fall-in and you're trapped, that can be lethal. So that is something to keep in mind is it's that straight up and down vertical that we tend to dig in archaeology can be very, especially in a, a square shape um, can be hazardous if it's not um, shored or properly um, reinforced if it's over I believe it's 1.4 um, meters does that sound about right 1.44 ish I think I think that's uh, the ones I've feet. encountered are 1.2 okay yeah but I don't know if that's just the difference between Canada and the states could be yeah. It's around there. It's, it's less than two, more than one. <laughs> <laughs> that works. <laughs> yeah, I think the, the OSHA goes by, uh, I think it was like five feet or five feet and something. So something to keep in mind. Yeah. yeah. It's another opportunity to, uh, you know, like Kirsten said, build, build a pretty valuable set of skills and, uh, you know, keep yourself and others safe around you. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, I noticed uh, in some of the notes that Kirsten and I were sharing back and forth, aside from excavation, uh, you know, excavation is just one part of doing field work in archaeology. Survey is probably one of the more prevalent types of projects in uh, archaeology. Mm-hmm. And land navigation is super important. Yeah, know, <laughs> know how to use a compass. Because as if you've ever been on survey as an archaeologist or otherwise, you know that those GPS units are not always accurate. Um, They go in and out of accuracy if you're in a forested area, a canyon, anything that has um, even like really thick um, overcast clouds, you're not going to get as many satellites. And so your accuracy drops. And it's always good to know how to read a map and a compass. For sure. Well, what can what can archaeologists do? Because I know like go dig a hole is really popular with like undergrads who are trying to get into archaeology. What can they yeah. do if the university doesn't offer that? Like my my I did not get that in my undergrad, master's, or PhD education in nope. archaeology, and I had to learn it myself. <laughs> but, like, I did as well. <laughs> so what what can you do? Can like should archaeology societies be offering that to to its members? I mean like, that would be groups? great. That I that would be awesome for sure if if uh, you know local archaeological societies did you know skills workshops because um, I could see that being a way to you know not only build professional skills for early career archaeologists like undergrads but also to build those skills with interested members of the public too because um, at least here uh, the the interested members of the public make up a significant amount of the membership of uh, like the Oregon Archaeological Society and, yeah. you know, getting a workshop together like that is a great way to, you know, kind of get everybody on the same page. But if you mm. don't have those sort of resources, like if, if you're not in like an urban core with, you know, a, a lot of different groups like that, uh, then, 
you know, there's always, there's always YouTube, um, and there's always books. And I actually came about archeology span in a roundabout way. Um, you know, I've, I've told my story on, on a bunch of other episodes, but you know, without rat holing on that, um, I had a background as a wilderness backpacking guide and reading a lot of, um, you know, hiking and backpacking books and just being part of that community before I came to archaeology. Mm-hmm. My learning curve for doing archaeological survey was pretty shallow. Um, you know, it's basically just add digging a hole and filling out paperwork mm-hmm. to land navigation and yeah. your shoe in. Um, so that's that's a great resource. Depending on where you are, if you have an REI um, or another outdoor store like that in your area, um, places like that often do weekend workshops and like basic skills yeah. workshops. Um, there's also, you know, just like, uh, meetup groups, depending on where you are that do those kinds of things. Yeah. There's a popular, um, thing that's been going around. I've seen for kids workshops for teens and also adults is like wayfinding clubs yeah. where you actually, nice. um, so that's you learn the basic skills of a compass and map, and then you do basically kind of like puzzle solving. <laughs> Everyone races or tries to get to specific landmarks or areas um, based on various clues. You get to one, you find the clue for the next one and so forth. So um, that's kind of a fun way to hone the skills, too, if you already have them and a good place to, to gain them. Um, some colleges and universities do offer outdoor skills um this may be less common out east um sort of one of the the big uh differences and things that i've seen and chris you can totally validate or tear me down on this but i get the feeling that the large quantities of public land in the west does encourage a lot more people to have those types of outdoor skills versus those who if you want to go camping you're going to go to like a privately owned campground or a friend's property which is more common on the east coast yeah definitely so it's it can be harder to acquire those skills if if there isn't access to particularly large parks or um yeah a place that you could go to practice so but don't also bite off more than you can chew by taking a book and then going and heading up like Mount Hood or something. <laughs> That's just a bad idea. Yeah, use the buddy system for sure. <laughs> and I guess one other thing that I wanted to touch on that I kind of forgot about for a minute, but getting back to the some of the other things that archaeologists do, one is monitoring, which I, I mentioned earlier. So if you're on a construction crew or helping with um, other infrastructure projects that have been approved and all of the other steps have been completed and you're basically there to to kind of keep an eye on things and make sure something doesn't come up unexpectedly, um, know your hand signals to work with the excavators know how to communicate with the people that are running the machinery. Um, the, the hand signals are fairly universal. They're easy to find online. OSHA and also other um, uh, workplace um, hazard groups that are state and uh, region specific 
usually also have standardized hand signals yeah. um, that are used so that you can, it, it's also great, not just for safety, but also to be able to gain the respect because sometimes as a woman, it can be challenging <laughs> with yep. a lot of really like, yeah, construction workers. I don't know. That's of itself. I grew up around construction workers. They, it's just a different culture and women aren't usually, um, it's true. Often there, <laughs> they, they are sometimes, and then, then it's great. But if you're the only woman on site, then knowing some of these things can really help your, uh, credibility and, um, being able to also let them know when you want them to stop yeah. and being like on top of it rather than like trying to yell at someone to yell at them to stop. <laughs> um, and it can also be really fun because you're more involved. I tend to, I know people that will go on monitoring jobs and they're like, Oh, it's horribly boring. I'm like, are you kidding me? Granted there are some that are boring, but like being able to stand there and really kind of keep a close eye. Um, and when things get, you know, close or something suspected, you can kind of, you can be more involved in letting the excavator notice that something aside so you can poke at it, um, on the, to the side of the excavation area or yep. whatnot. So, yeah. Plus the, the heavy equipment operators are often pretty interested in, in what you're looking for. And so if yeah. you can communicate, you know, just basic, uh, you know, hand signals for operating the machine, uh, then that helps with, you know, you know, kind of reaching that common ground. And then when they do stop the machine, they won't be pissed off at you. They'll be like, Hey, what'd you find? Explain to me what you found. And then, you know, that way there's just kind of, you know, common respect and appreciation for each other on the job. Yeah. Cause otherwise they know that you're there and can stop things. They don't really have a whole lot of, uh, care or insight as to what you do if if that's the only interaction they have is yeah. don't and stop and whatnot. Definitely. Well, Steph, I know that you had um, some things that you wanted to uh, mention in terms of uh, you know field hazards. Yeah. Um, well, I was just thinking too because we were talking about learning how to use a map and a compass and uh, learning how to read the land. I think a big part of that also includes. Um, making yourself aware of what wildlife you could encounter. Oh, yeah. Uh, I think that's a big thing to talk about. Uh, I I work in forests quite a bit, and I've had quite a few wildlife encounters um, with everything from deer to goshawks to uh, coyotes and bears. Um, so I think spending some time before, if you're new to the field um, or if you're moving to a new area, a new region, Spend some time familiarizing yourself with what wildlife you might encounter and learn how to react if you do encounter them. Yes, yeah. absolutely. That is a life or oh, death yeah. skill. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I Last summer, I guess it was, when we had a bear and her cub wander into, into sight and she was like 10 meters away from where my colleague and I were, it was, it was scary and it's easy to to imagine a panicking situation um, if we didn't really know, if we hadn't had some bear training ahead of time, I could easily yeah. see how we could have started panicking. So definitely spend some time learning about the wildlife, learning what's good to do and what you should avoid doing. Yes. Yeah. 
Oh God, bears are terrifying. Yeah, yeah. And also, how to so tell the adorable. difference between like a brown bear and a black bear because yeah, uh, you know, sometimes black bears can look brownish, uh, but you know, like they're they're two very different animals, and one you you know do have a fighting chance to survive an encounter with the other one if you do it the wrong way you absolutely don't yeah absolutely yeah. Yeah. and then there's cougars <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, oh yeah i always say if you see the cougar it's too late yeah yep. they've yeah. probably been tracking you all day yeah they're, so their kills are bad too because they'll like they'll bury their kills and you won't even see them until you stepped on them and your boots are covered in blood and then I've been lucky in this because I've I've done that before and luckily nothing happened. But I've heard I've heard tales of cougars like stalking people who have stepped in their kills all day. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, I have uh, one of one of my favorite photos uh, of myself in the field. My my colleague took a photo of me in the field and it's so cool. It looks so amazing, so badass. It was me tripping over a cougar kill. Oh, oh I have to sort of like look down and I'm like, oh shit. Um, and my foot got caught on a, a vine, uh, a salal vine just behind it. Um, and so I'm sort of in the midst of tripping over this vine and trying to avoid this cougar kill that I'm about to fall on. And it just, I look awesome. On the <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty Good sweet. Timing. Yeah. Yeah. But it's true. I mean, like it, it's learn how to react if you're at risk of cougars, learn how to minimize cougar reaction or uh, cougar encounters, like avoiding stopping. Cougars like to hunt from above. So when we stop on breaks on survey, we're always careful not to stop below um, big rock cliffs and rock faces. Yep. Yeah. Um, and learn how maybe what you should do for a cougar is not the same as what you should do for a coyote or a bear mm -hmm. um just and yeah. and wolves in the few places yeah. that they are repopulated so yeah absolutely wolves much of yeah that's <laughs> i haven't actually knock on wood yet encountered a wolf um in the wild but yeah. we have yeah cougars galore um <laughs> my i've I used to be much more afraid of cougars than I am now. I've had enough encounters with them to where generally, like you said, if, if you see them, they know you're there. Yeah. And generally, this isn't a total rule, but generally speaking, if they know you're there and they've been tracking you for a while, mm -hmm. they're probably not planning on eating you. <laughs> because Man, I, mi I miss field work now. There is a, a that chance, the opportunity they had, and they didn't probably yet. So, um, being eaten makes you miss field work. <laughs> Gallows humor. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. Let's see. I Your think coyotes. Coyotes are spooky too. Uh, oh, we they're a, so cool, though. They, I really like them, but they're one animal that I absolutely 100% do not trust because mm -hmm. you could have a really positive coyote encounter. You know, they're just sort of curious and they watch you. Uh, and then the next one is they will like come after you and nip at you. So it's just, you. they're so unpredictable. 
Yeah. And we, a couple of summers ago, we had, um, where we were working out in BC, there was a pack of coyotes hanging around. And I remember one day, this one coyote, he was so bold. He kept just trotting right into the middle of, of sight, literally the middle of all of our units. Oh, wow. He would just come right in. He would check us all out and he would go out. Um, <clears throat> and then at one point I went off to use my, my pea tree and uh, he had come back while I was doing that. And apparently he had situated himself where he was just watching me the entire time, which I mean, is super pervy anyway, but also <laughs> just really creepy. And then we left for lunch. We went down to the beach for lunch. We came back and I don't know if it was the same coyote or a different one, but they went rifling through our stuff. We found a bunch of our bags knocked over and chewed up. And oh, wow. man. They're Damn. So they are the tricksters. They yep. are. They really yep. are. Yeah. And uh, I, I couldn't really see many archaeological surveys happening in environments like this, but uh, last time I went backpacking uh, in the Olympic National Forest, uh, we were warned by the rangers about the the mountain goats and mm, yeah. I had never encountered one before. And so, uh, you know, they, they told my brother and I, um, Hey, when you get to the summit of this mountain, uh, it's going to be above the tree line. Um, there's really, you know, nowhere else for you to, to take a break, but you'll be out in the open on rocks and snow and stuff. And, uh, they were like, whatever you do, don't take your pack off. Cause the mountain goats will take it. And I'm like, seriously i'm i'm hauling like 30 pounds up to the top of a mountain what do you think they're gonna do and so uh they also said like um don't pee near your camp and don't leave any food or gear unattended because they'll they'll take your gear and they'll try and eat your pee because they're so uh hungry for salts that they get it off of your sweat off of the sweat that's been on your gear and out of your pee and so they were oh, like, whoa. pee far away from your camp and all that. And sure enough, uh, lo and behold, like the first mountain goat we saw, it, it came right up to us. And having never seen one in person before, I was amazed at how burly these things are. Like they're huge and just yeah. solid muscle. And uh, like it just came rolling right up to us. And the the thing that the rangers said was uh, keep wildlife wild. You know, don't let them near you. Try and scare them away. Um, because if they lose that fear for humans, then, um, you know, they can actually hurt humans. And there have been reports of mountain goats in the Pacific Northwest killing hikers um, because they wow. get they get too close and they're so strong and they've got those pointy horns that they can just mess you up. And uh, yeah. so, yeah, it goes for all of the others. Like, it, you know, talking about coyotes made me think about that. Like, you know, you might have a positive encounter with a coyote or a raccoon, but, you know, like just don't just you know, keep them wild and, uh, yeah. Try and leave no trace. Yeah. There's a lot of, um, mountain sheep, um, or the bighorn sheep on the East side in Oregon and, uh, Washington, Idaho. Um, one of the other things too, are rattlesnakes. And I'm sure this is probably, you know, there's more of these plus, you know, scorpions. And then if you get in the Southeast, there's things like alligators and things that will try and eat you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but trying to, to like we said, like someone said earlier, um, I know it wasn't me just make sure you have, you figure out what animal hazards there are because they can be anything from, you know, 
if there's a lot of black widows <laughs> in a specific area, um, rattlesnakes. I encountered one, a baby rattlesnake, a few couple days ago. That was exciting. I'm like, okay, well then, you know, I'm I'm gonna go this way. <laughs> <laughs> not not something I I want to uh, hazard a, a an encounter with, yep. especially that day. It was it was pretty warm. Um, so, uh, and also know where, how, how far, uh, the nearest hospitals are. And usually I've not really ever worked on a crew where the crew chief did not have a map to the nearest hospital. That is something that is pretty consistent, um, that people are fairly good about just in case, cause that can be anything from stepping in an unexpected hole in the ground and, you know, breaking a leg to, um, uh, anaphylactic reaction to something, to a animal encounter or something of those sorts. Like there's so many reasons <laughs> and make sure you have a life insurance policy. Let's just they, top that off. Yeah. <laughs> at, at the university of Toronto, everybody who does field work is supposed to attend this like grad student abroad training sort of program. And they tell us, they tell us, <laughs> did you go to that Danielle? Yeah, it's terrible. It's bullshit. <laughs> um, and they tell this when I, when I did it. This was after I had I had been doing field work for like five years. They finally made me do it. Um, go school. And uh, when we were when we were sitting there, they were telling this. They were telling two stories. The first one was of a geography graduate student who got in a cab, and because she was, and this is how the the training framed it. Because she was a geographer, she understood that the cab was taking her in the opposite direction that she had wanted. So she pulled a knife on the cab driver and Whoa. got him to pull over, and she got out of the car and walked to where she was trying to go. The second story relates to this thing about safe? insurance. Pardon? Uh, that's not a good way to deal with that situation. No, it's not. Not at all. Not at all. <laughs> that's like the worst thing that that's, you should be like, telling a like room full of students. Don't like random zero to hundred. <laughs> yeah, you don't do that. But that's don't what they told us. Put a knife on people and don't walk through strange areas you don't know anything about. Exactly. Yeah. That's like two like no nos. But the next one is like a huge. It's like it's terrifying. So a grad student was abroad and broke their leg. And they said they they said that the student had broken their femur, Ooh. and they did, they didn't have insurance or or I don't know if it was the femur, but they broke their leg and it was significant, and they didn't have insurance and they couldn't afford it. So the student, as the training said, toughed it out and got on a plane to get back to Canada. In their femur, they would have died. No. Oh. <laughs> yeah. It's you so, always, if you're going abroad and working, you always have insurance to get go. Get that travel insurance. Yeah. yeah. Dude. Seriously. Yeah. Always worth it. I will say, though, the problem with a lot of travel insurance is that even if you have, like, the insurance to cover it, it still requires you to cover the payments up front. So, and yeah. then, like, reimburse you. So, like, 100%, make sure that you have a credit limit that's high enough to pay for possible yes. hospital bills. Yeah. I don't and um it's been an issue a couple times yeah so <laughs> this is i i guess more of a comment on uh the shabby state of healthcare in our country but um i i broke my my fibula many years ago and um as someone who had really good health insurance uh you know between the the x-ray the the boot uh fortunately it wasn't 
uh, a complicated fracture and I just had to wear a boot for two months and then have, you know, follow up and physical therapy and all that. The whole thing had me out about $2,000. And that was with one of the best health insurance plans that I, I could get at the time. Now, I broke my hand in Portugal and as a foreigner with travel insurance, it, it did not meet the minimum or the deductible for the travel insurance. But between uh, between the emergency room visit, the x-ray, the cast, uh, the follow-up x-ray, a new cast because I was still working on site and it, my cast just got filthy and, and nasty. Um, and they had to cut it off and put a new cast on. And then I got another x-ray uh, and all of the you know pain medicine and stuff that came with that, the whole thing cost me about 130 euros. Nice. Yeah. Whoa. I was just yeah. like, what? I, I had an anaphylactic reaction, and one of my various anaphylactic reactions in Jordan cost me 11 dinar. Wow. That is it. I can't imagine that that is a lot given the exchange rate. It, it's 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 like... Compared to, I think in the States, an EpiPen costs $600 or something now. Yeah. Yeah. And they expire every year. Yep. Ridiculous. Yeah. It's ridiculous. Yeah. So, like, have a, have a, you know, have travel insurance, you know, make sure your credit limit's okay. These are all things that they don't teach you in, no. before you're going to do field work. Yeah. They tell you that field work's going to be great. And this is perhaps something that, people should cover when they run student field schools. Yeah. Well, and another thing as far as what you don't learn until you're physically out in the field, um, aside from, from hypothermia and heat stroke, like what kind of clothing is particularly necessary or ideal? Yeah. You don't want to generally be wearing a tank top on survey. And I found that out the hard way. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's definitely worth splurging on like real field gear. Oh yes. yeah, yeah, you like really a sun hat and a sun shirt. Yeah, I rock. I rock that Tilly hat. Well, yeah, Tilly hat too. And it's the best. Oh my god, yeah, I yeah. look so yeah. good in it. <laughs> if you're if you're living in North America or especially like the U.S. and Canada, everything goes on sale in January. That's when I buy all of my field clothes. Uh huh. Yeah. Because nobody is looking for field shirts in January except for me. Um, yeah. <laughs> I also love cargo amazing. pants. Yeah, yeah. Well, cargo pants are the damn best. And I've said this. I said this on Go Dig a Hole. I just wish it was more socially acceptable for me to wear cargo pants every day, <laughs> and that they made cargo pants for dudes who are slim. Yeah. <laughs> I have a hard time finding women's cargo pants. I have a hard time finding women's pants in general because yeah. of my height, and my weight size. But yes. it's so difficult to find women's cargo pants anywhere so there's two companies that i know of um that do specialize in women's work gear um there is red ants pants i believe they're out of montana and they do different shapes uh for women's pants and they're kind of similar to carhartt's um and there's another company out of uh, Corvallis, Oregon, actually, and I just met the owner recently. She is doing some amazing things. Uh, she does everything from gloves. She's currently working on a prototype for women's um, safety reflective gear. 
uh, and pants. Uh, she actually did a Kickstarter for that a little while ago, and they sold out like nice. two times over. Nice. So she said there should be some ready for public consumption in September. So keep your eyes on that. And then that is called Groundbreaker. Um, and they aim at women in the trades. So it's field workers, farmers, welders, like running the gamut. So like they have really great sizes for gloves. Like the extra small is actually like extra small. Like I can't even fit my hands in there. <laughs> um, <laughs> and um, so, so there's some pretty neat stuff going on. It's definitely becoming more, um, of a thing and i think with the advent of the internet and internet shopping we're going to see more of that kind of stuff come around because even if it's a small percentage of say a particular um shop in a particular location i mean there are a lot of women who work in the trades and in the field so you know it's something that's definitely i think going to be um more visible in the next few years yes. i will say like an uncommon, I think, hip to waist ratio. And um, I have a really good luck with the men's pants from MEC because they have adjustable uh, waist that, pants. That's the, that's the Canadian equivalent of REI. Yes. Yeah. Oh, okay. Nice. For Canadian listeners, for American listeners, I'm sorry, you're out of luck. But um, yeah, <laughs> they have like, adjustable Velcro waistbands. And it's just like they actually, like, it's like the, when you, adjust the waistbands they kind of stay where you adjust them they don't like slip and slide they're like my favorite field pants if you catch them on sale they're super affordable nice I, this may just you know be a requisite trip to bc i think yeah oh, yeah. yeah yeah i like for me i really they're a little bit pricier i like patagonia oh yeah um i have like i kind of like sit in that like in between waist size and uh, so i'm like a 31 waist 31 inch waist and most like outdoor companies, they don't go as low as 30 and mm -hmm. 32 is usually their smallest. And a 32 is just a little too big for me where the rest of it doesn't really sit my leg, sit on my legs well. So Patagonia yeah. like has a 31 size. Nice. Uh, so I have like one pair of Patagonia pants that I take everywhere. <laughs> That's yeah. awesome. I'm definitely sure. of the mindset that like, um, if you take care of your body, uh, it'll take care of you. So like, you know, when it comes to, to boots, especially, uh, you oh, know, yeah. I, oh, yeah. I just take good care of my feet because I, you know, if you take good care of your feet, you're taking good care of your knees, your hips, your back. Uh, and yep. it's just, that's kind of the building block for a field scientist is take real good care of your feet. Make sure you've got, um, you know, sturdy boots and good insoles, replace your insoles, you know, depending on how active you are however often you need it probably every six months if you're a daily hiker um yeah but uh that's i'd say that's my recommendation for you know just kind of taking care of yourself from the ground up really and proper like a proper pack too because your back is really important yeah. yeah those those two things um recently <laughs> so i haven't been i've been working on my masters and i i've been doing a lot of lab work so i took a, a short uh foray into the fields a few days ago and i'll be going back out in a couple of weeks and i pulled something in <laughs> for my uh a nerve down my leg uh probably my sciatic so i'm really excited about um 
and getting that back in shape. And that was purely from, I have not worn my field gear in a while. I know I'm out of shape for the type of work that I was getting myself into. Um, so keeping your body in shape is very important, especially overwintering, or if you are just finishing up a degree, <laughs> get yourself back into the gym or something. Yeah. Start I have going a... hiking more often. <laughs> so my brother uh, is a personal trainer and I have an episode in the back catalog that I was actually just working on uh, re-editing the other day. So I'll, I'll put that out as one of the archived episodes, but uh, the, the episode's called Fit for the Field. And in a nutshell, it, his his vision of fitness isn't, you know, like being ripped and jacked and super strong. It's the ability to move without pain is mm. or the ability yeah. to move without hurting yourself is kind of his... his uh, vision of that. And I'd, I'd like to do a revisit of that because I saw a meme being shared on one of the archaeology Facebook groups. It was like a, a chart of a whole bunch of different tools, like a, a shovel, a, a trowel and stuff like that. And it was like biceps, triceps, you know, the bucket, you mm. know, back and core. And it's like, and the, the person posting it was like, this is why you don't have to work out. Like who needs a gym when you have this? And it's like, well, no, you, uh, that's wrong. You work out so <laughs> that you can do those without hurting yourself. Yeah. But once yeah, you're I in shape, if you do it consistently, it can help supplement any, you know, but definitely it's not its own thing. Yeah. Yeah. I saw, um, first, first of all, I didn't know that your, your brother was also a personal trainer. What is that? What can, what can he not do? Um, <laughs> I saw he posted, I think he posted a video on his Facebook page, his photography page, and it was like of his workout routine. I was like, oh, that's a lot of calisthenics. Like, <laughs> archaeologists, we need to do that more. Yes. Functional fitness. Yeah. Functional yeah. fitness for the field. Yeah, yes. and like I like I said, like it's it's just the ability to move without hurting yourself, or the ability yeah. to prevent injury. So you know that that just means that it's it's different things for different bodies, right? You know, so you know it's it's kind of each according to their ability and and each according to their need. Yeah, that's another thing is just getting to know your body and listen to it. Um, if you're feeling hot and overheated, if you're feeling particularly cold, like making sure that you're listening to and know how to listen to signals of stop or slow down, take a break, you yeah. need to eat, you need water, like any of those things. Um, and also somewhere, I, I'm not sure if it exists, but I, I may have dreamed it, but <laughs> somewhere was posted a list of injuries that are, are common in archaeologists um, by tool or um, activity. So things like screening will totally mess up your lower back Oh yeah, if you're not doing it right or if you're, that's all you're doing, which is why it's important to switch out with your partner. Yep. Um, and things like the... Um, there's lots of different terms for this particular piece of metal, but it's basically, um, I would often call it a breaker bar. So it's basically these, a giant six foot or so crowbar, oh, yeah. um, that you aim at the ground to break up compacted gravels and, uh, really hard earth. So those can be very dangerous if you don't know how to use it properly. So that's another thing to just know your tools all of all of that jazz because that's 
I mean, aside from obviously not stabbing yourself in the foot, um, you don't want to try and muscle that thing in because you're going to give yourself some serious elbow problems and other, um, like shred your rotator cuffs. Yeah, exactly. Any joints are going (laughs) to not like you very shortly (laughs) after you begin. It's true. And there's definitely a difference between feeling sore and exhausted at the end of a day versus Mm -hmm. you start the day and something starts to hurt right away and you, Mm -hmm. it just keeps getting worse. That's the difference too. Yeah. Um, Like there, we've all been through super tough days where by the end of the day, you just want to curl into a ball in the shower, but you know, you're going (laughs) to stiffen up and never uncurl because you hurt so badly. (laughs) We've all been there. Um, But if you start your day off grabbing a screen and curling into that ball, that's, that's something to work on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very well said. Well, <laughs> uh, anything else to add for for uh, field hazards, field stories before we uh, wrap this one up? Plants. Oh, plants. Make sure you know plants just as yeah. much as you know wildlife. Oh, yes. yes. A lot of poisonous plants out there. Yep. I, I did not know what stinging nettle was. Oh, was just... no. <laughs> Until I kept grabbing it because I'm like, what is this? Ow. What is it? <laughs> <laughs> my advisor and I really exciting. through a field of seeing nettles and the string of expletives that came out of our mouths was like like yeah. mind-blowing like, <laughs> I put, I I put my not... hand into a patch of nettle once and it was numb for three days oh, oh yeah. yeah 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 i'm actually immune to poison ivy or rather Ooh, it, it doesn't oh. it doesn't oh, cause a reaction that. and so for a long time, I just wouldn't really pay attention because I would be like, well, it doesn't affect me. But uh, when you're riding with a crew of people and you have the oils from the poison ivy all over you, and then all of a sudden the work vehicle is now covered with oils, you kind of have to start paying attention to it. So uh, I I learned it, even though it doesn't affect me. And yeah. Yeah. And always bring tech new. I mean, poison ivy, poison oak, they're, you know, I think East Coast, West Coast versions of practically the same chemical. Yeah. Um, but like tech new, even because I don't respond to it either. Um, and I still always have tech new with me and bring it in the shower because I will try and avoid it. I know other people are way sensitive and try and make sure that I just wash all my gear and things. Cause I have accident. I've made the, this was before I was an archeologist many, many years ago, but I made the accident uh, or the mistake of putting, I think it was a backpack that had poison oak on it in the washing machine. Yeah. And that coated or put uh, the oils in the washing machine. And then it's exchanged to some of the other items that the next person put in. <laughs> oh, that, no. Yeah. That was, that was bad. And it comes from the oh. roots, too, not just the leaves. So as, yeah. you're, as you're digging, you know, shovel tests or excavation units, um, you know, you can still get it from the roots. And, you know, then it's all over your gloves. It's all over your bucket. It's all over your tools. Um, so yeah, yeah, it's just one of those things. It's such a pain, but you just got to be really careful with it. And I did a similar thing, Kirsten, where, uh, 
I, I washed my clothes with it and I had two roommates who were not archaeologists and, you know, they, they did their laundry after me and uh, they ended up getting poison ivy. Ooh. Yeah. You have to like do a wash the machine yeah. in, on some of the newer washing machines. I've seen settings that are like, you know, a free rinse or washing of the the basket and it's just putting soap like you're going to do a load and everything else and put it on hot let it run yeah like <laughs> yeah it's scrubbing something serious and that will that will help because that's that's also helpful if you have people on a totally different tangent who are um as sensitive to things like bleach and other chemical hazards that you know are around and about yeah, definitely. Well, uh, well, I guess as we close up, uh, I'm going to borrow a cue that I've been using from Daniel for a while now. And uh, we'll go around and uh, figure out where can people find you? Uh, Daniel, you want to kick internet. us off? <laughs> <laughs> me, on me, me. Okay, so you, you, can, uh, you can listen to my podcast, Curiosity and Focus, on all podcasting platforms. Uh, Chris, we'll, we're going to do something for season six of the show. Um, I have a, a new show coming out in August on the One Shot Podcast Network called Asians Represent. Uh, it's about uh, highlights the contributions of Asian creators to tabletop gaming, uh, as well as kind of deconstructing problematic content and the use of Asian culture in games. Nice. Uh, you can find me on like Twitter and Instagram at Daniel H. Kwan very practiced at that <laughs> <laughs> fabulous <laughs> so i guess i'll go um kirsten lopez uh you can find me on a few different locations um you can find me on facebook i have a public account that you should be able to find just with my first last name um i am on twitter uh at archifem and i am also on pinterest periodically um and that is at blue jade rose and that's when i have a mix of personal and um work stuff that gets posted periodically so that one can be kind of fun too the women in archaeology.com it is a blog and my other podcast uh that I co-host with a team there are four of us and we talk archaeology uh, from all different angles um, and love the various perspectives we get on there and focus on a um, feminine uh, angle. Uh, that is also um, on Twitter and that's at Women Archies and that has all four of us cont uh, contributing to it regularly. So um, you can find the podcast and the blog on uh, womeninarchaeology.com Steph Helmhofer you can find me on Twitter at bones underscore Canada uh, you can find me on Instagram at bones dot Canada um, and you can find my website at www.bonesstonesandbooks.com yeah I'm at uh, on Instagram at uh, D-E underscore C-A-R-L-E and uh, on Twitter at Danielle DeCaro all one word um I'm trying to be more active on Twitter, so hopefully I'll have interesting content for you. <laughs> mostly I just retweet pictures of cool invertebrates. 
Yay. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, uh, thank you everyone for uh, joining this episode. It seems like third time was the charm. Yay. <laughs> and for anyone in the Portland area, Kirsten and I are always happy to have guests at the Stream PDX Airstream studio. Uh, get in touch with us and uh, join us in the studio in Northeast Portland. We're also members of a Facebook group uh, called Oregon Archaeologists. Uh, we host regular meetups, and now that the field season is coming to a close and everybody is more or less back home for the summer and fall, uh, we'll be scheduling a meetup too. So uh, find us there and uh, get involved with the local community. Also, if you're in the Portland area, the Oregon Archaeological Society is also kicking off their season of guest speakers. So go look up the Oregon Archaeological Society and uh, attend one of their meetings. Thanks for listening to the Go Dig a Hole podcast. If you enjoyed this show, please consider uh, supporting it on Patreon. You can go to patreon.com forward slash go dig a hole. Uh, all of your contributions are incredibly appreciated and uh, I've already been able to do a lot of amazing things with your support so thanks again and please uh, share this with any of your friends colleagues classmates students teachers whatever uh, you can also find me online I'm very online uh, the blog is go dig a hole uh, you can find me on all the social media platforms at go dig a hole